Hello, welcome to Ideas Sleep Furiously. I'm Matt Archer. Today, I'm speaking with the philosopher Eric Schwitzgabel. Eric is an American philosopher and professor of philosophy at the University of California, Riverside. His main interests include connections between empirical psychology and philosophy of mind and the nature of belief. Eric has very eclectic research interests. Uh, we talk about everything from consciousness, skepticism, UFOs, public philosophy, Sam Harris, Jordan Peterson, free will, you name it. We talk about it. This podcast is available on all your major podcasting platforms, Spotify, Google, Google Podcasts, and iTunes. So, without further ado, I give you a far-ranging, loopy conversation with the wonderful Eric Schwitzgabel. My own inclination is to think we aren't that radically different from dogs and apes. So the first thing I was hoping you could do, um, you, you've got such an eclectic uh, set of research interests, is kind of summarise your intellectual background. Is what I ask everybody to do. It's, I think it's quite nice to hear it in in uh, people's own words. How you got to where you are what you're currently interested in, and just that intellectual journey. So I was an undergraduate at Stanford and read widely on all kinds of things and took classes in all kinds of things and didn't declare philosophy until my senior year, actually. And then I had to take an extra quarter to finish it up. I just packed solid with philosophy classes. I, I, remember, I think I read, I read a long-form interview <laughs> with you, and I found the YouTube yes. video that was two hours. And you said in, because I, I just read it, and it said in the transcript that you were in, was it your fifth year? Uh, yes, I finished. Can you do this in America? You can just, you can keep going, and then you pick a, a major, and then you just have to get the requirements to graduate in that major. Yes. Um, in fact, I think the median time to graduate for U.S. undergrads is five, about five years. Right. Okay. Um, a lot of people don't do it in the normative four years, and so I was like that. A lot of people do declare a major early on. I was slow to declare the major. You but yeah, one of the, one of the wonderful things about the U.S. Uh, undergraduate system compared to with the system in a lot of countries is that you really can spend the first two years uh, exploring different alternatives before deciding what you want to do. That's, that's more difficult in the sciences where there are a lot more, as the structure is a little more rigid with more prerequisites and that sort of thing. But even that is to some extent uh, the case. When I first came to college, uh, I thought I might major in chemistry or biology um, and end up flipping out of that. Um, so, yeah, so it was good for me because I'm someone with very broad, eclectic interests. So it was wonderful to be able to just explore what I wanted um, before deciding on philosophy. I mean, my attitude was I just take whatever classes sound interesting. <laughs> and then whatever is closest to finishing in my senior year would be my major and I'd go to grad school. And that, that, was, my, that was my plan. So if you could pick a major again, and it can't be philosophy, what would you go with? Would it be psychology, considering your uh, your yeah your um, bridge between the two with your current research? I think it would be psychology. Um, although I took no psychology classes as an undergraduate, um, maybe partly because my father is a psych professor. <laughs> I got a lot of psych at home. Um, 
uh, and you I rebelled. Think I, wanted, I wanted to distance myself just a little bit uh, from him. And then as a graduate student, I really fell in love with psychology so much. Um, so I kind of regret that. I, I mean, Stanford has an amazing psych program. I, I regret yeah, now yeah. in retrospect that I didn't take at least some psych classes. But uh, yeah, when I got to Berkeley, so I had been really excited by especially uh, philosophy of science and epistemology as skeptical epistemology in particular and philosophy of science as an undergrad. And when I got to Berkeley, I decided I wanted to do philosophy of science. Um, I was very influenced by what's called Stanford School Philosophy of Science, uh, which is this idea that the world is pretty much intractably complex. You're not going to come up with a simple scientific model of anything except for some very simplified controlled systems. Everything is this giant tangled mess. And so what you need to do as a scientist or a theorist in general is kind of acknowledge that and realize that all the models are going to be limited and imperfect and there are going to be trade-offs, right? Some models will be better in certain respects and worse in other respects, be better for mapping certain kinds of issues, worse for mapping others, but there won't necessarily be, there won't really ever realistically be kind of the one true model of how things are really going on in this complex system. Was this something that you were thinking about when you jump into that undergraduate? I mean, I, I know you had read, obviously, uh, people like Nietzsche um, before going to college, but is this was this part of your thought? Was it germinating when you go into the undergraduate reading this and you start with Descartes and he's making this powerful case for um, the only thing that you can know is that you're having some type of experience. Um, and then you begin to build on that with people like Thomas Kuhn. Um, I would say it was, that's that's close, but that's not quite where it was. I was um, always very interested f from high school on in iconoclastic skeptics. Um, so uh, Paul Feyerabend, uh, Nietzsche, Zhuangzi, people who would be very critical of this idea that philosophy or the people kind of in intellectual power kind of have the reason which they can then deliver to you on an authoritative authoritarian plate as it were <laughs> right so and then so I, I was attracted to that kind of um radical and critical sometimes skeptical epistemology um and then I really got excited when I read Thomas Kuhn in Philosophy of Science, because that seemed to me, he seemed to me to be making uh, a historically based, a kind of compelling and historically based case for uh, limitations in scientists' understanding of the world and the cultural conditions, contingencies of scientific theories. Um, so that then led into as I was saying, this kind of Stanford school picture mm -hmm. of philosophy of science for me. So the kind of interest in iconoclasm and radical skepticism um, kind of combined with Kuhn's history of science and this kind of complex worldview in, in Stanford philosophy of science. Uh, and that was kind of what I entered grad school with. Did you spend much time um, among the ancients, among people. I, I, is it pronounced Piero? Piero, the ancient Greeks? Uh, yeah, skepticism. I took a class on ancient Greek skepticism, which was wonderful. 
I really loved the ancient Greek skeptics, uh, especially Sextus Empiricus. Um, <laughs> and um, I also, the uh, Chinese ancients were uh, of great interest to me. I took a wonderful class with uh, PJ Ivanhoe on ancient Chinese philosophy. And that's where I first uh, met Zhuangzi, uh, who's uh, maybe my favorite philosopher. Um, and my first paper, my first published paper was actually on, on Zhuangzi. So I did spend time with the ancient skeptics and I also independently discovered Montaigne and loved Montaigne. Uh, he's not ancient, but uh, he was very influenced by the ancient skeptics. How much do you think that um, skepticism has developed since the ancients and through uh, the enlightenment Descartes to um, Nietzsche? I, I can always struggle to pronounce his name. Is it fi Firebend? You just said it. Firebend would be the Firebend. Kind of yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I kind of prefer the old school skepticism to the more recent incarnations, I have to admit. <laughs> um, there's certainly been lots of interesting work on skepticism in the 20th century and the 21st century. Um, mm. A lot of it is, in my mind, overly focused on knowledge and what is knowledge and can we have justified beliefs that fall short of knowledge how uh how rigorous do we need to how rigorous does our understanding of something need to be for us to call something knowledge um and i think you can actually pose the skeptical puzzles without even thinking about the word knowledge without using the word knowledge um, and so this focus on skepticism as the denial of knowledge is, I think, misses the real heart of what's interesting in skepticism. Could you unpack that a little more? That's, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, so um, I talk about this somewhat in a paper I published a few years ago, ago called 1% Skepticism, which actually doesn't use the word knowledge until near the end of the paper <laughs> uh, intentionally. Um, so if you think about something like, is it possible that you're dreaming right now? Uh, you could say, you know what, I think it kind of is possible. Or you could say, well, no, that's ridiculous. Right. And you can think about that question. No, that I'm dreaming right now. Another way to think about it is how confident should I be that I am currently awake? Set aside the question of whether, you know, sufficient confidence is sufficient for knowledge or any of that stuff. Just think about how confident should I be that I'm currently awake? And the skeptic says something like, well, a certain kind of skeptic like Pyrrho like or Sextus says, maybe in a case like that, you know, you should be in this state of approximate equal valence between, oh, I'm awake or I'm asleep. Right. Um, but a less radical kind of skeptic uh, could say, well, I can't be completely sure I'm awake because, you know, sometimes I have pretty realistic dreams and sometimes I've woken up from those and I, in which I think I'm awake, right? In which I may be even kind of in the dream say to myself, yeah, I'm awake, right? And then I wake up again, right? So could this be a dream like that? I don't think so, but I guess I kind of have to allow the, you know, I'm not, I'm not totally sure that 
I'm awake, right? That kind of um, level of uncertainty, um, I call 1% skepticism. It's like you have a 1% credence, approximately 1% credence or 0.1% credence, that is degree of belief. You know, you think there's, uh, you know, almost certainly I'm awake. I'm pretty sure I'm awake. It, it seems, you know, pretty reasonable to think I'm awake. But is there room for that kind of sliver of doubt? I think so. I, I was watching a video with um, Agnes Callard. Um, at, I think mm. she's at Chicago talking about um, you know, th this is why we have the Socratic method in order to kind of dance the dance between someone who is uh, looking to believe and someone who's looking to doubt, right? And you can, if you have one person doing one, you know, just one person, I guess, doing falsification and the other person, you know, trying to believe something about the world, then you can try and arrive at some truth claims. Is that how you see the Socratic method and its utility? Uh, yeah, that's a pretty nice description of what can go on in the Socratic method. Um, I'm a, I like dialogue, and I think philosophical dialogue has been underused and underappreciated in, you know, the past century compared to the role that it played in earlier philosophy, both in uh, printed dialogues that were constructed as dialogues, like, of course, Plato um, and Berkeley and Hume and others, but also in, in the exchange of letters uh, that used to be so common among philosophers. Um, there's something that I like even better than the Socratic method, which I think of as authentic dialogue, where you start with two people who have maybe different positions to begin with. And Socratic method, as you, I think, correctly described how it's currently used and viewed, is adversarial, where kind of like law, where you really are taking roles as opponents and trying to fulfill those roles. Whereas I think in authentic dialogue or what I think of as authentic dialogue, there's an openness to changing your mind. And there's an interest in presenting not just reasons that might convince the other, mm. but your true reasons for thinking something, right? So a lawyer or someone who's engaged in Socratic dialogue conceived of in that way will present reasons that they just hope that the audience or the interlocutor finds convincing, regardless of whether they themselves are moved by those reasons. Whereas in an authentic dialogue, uh, you wouldn't do that. You would only present reasons if you found them personally worth considering and they were what you regard as an important part of the epistemic support for the position you favor. So you invite, you say, hey, look, this is why I think this is the case and here are my reasons. And you know what, if you can undermine these reasons and, re and convince me these reasons don't hold or don't support the position that I, th I think, then maybe I'll change my mind. Do you, do you favor this over the, the lawyer's inquisition uh, method for, 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 for a pragmatic reason? Do you think it's, it brings you closer to an approximation of the truth of reality? Um, or is it for, for another purpose? Is it just for cordial dialogue? No, I, uh, I, think, I think it's epistemically preferable. I think that um, it ends the, the interlocutors end up closer to the truth 
when they engage in that style. Um, and that it's probably also better for the audience. Yeah, I, it sounds also very much like this um, idea of still manning, right? So you're, you put mm. the, your interlocutor's best argument forward and then they can um, see the evident um, misunderstanding if, if there is any and, and correct it. Actually, I've got right. so many, um, <laughs> as, as, as you say, your work is so eclectic. I've got so many um, random questions. And I know uh, I said I wanted to talk about uh, philosophy and psychology, but I hope you don't mind because uh, you, you've oh, got no, so many different fun. interests. And actually, <laughs> that, that's a nice segue because one of the questions, one of these random questions was about what your, your thought was on um, not just public philosophy, but public intellectuals and public thought. So people like Michael Sandel at Harvard, um, but all the way to you know the rise of someone like Jordan Peterson, Sam Harris and his podcast. Are you in favour of those um, that that I don't even know what you'd call it. First of all, the public conversation. There are so many things to pass it. The public conversation, but then also the um, the fame which some of these figures acquire, and obviously the way that that warps um, not just the perception of them, but their perception of the world. I mean, there's so much going on in what you could, I guess, a cynical kind of Marxist interpretation might be the commodification of the intellectual. Uh, how do you, how do you view people like Peterson, Harris, and um, Sandel? I think it's good. Now, I don't agree with them about everything by any means. And in fact, I think some of uh, Peterson and Harris's work is sloppy. Um, but, um, but in general, I'm in favor of the phenomenon. I think it's good for, it's not necessarily good for an individual to become that famous, yeah. but I think it's good for philosophy and it's good for the public if there's more interaction between philosophers and the public. Um, it's good for the public because philosophy is relevant. I think we're all kind of, I think everybody cares about philosophy. They might not realize it uh, because they're, if they're used to dry academic versions of it, but everybody cares and has opinions about what has fundamental value, right? What is uh, the world like fundamentally, you know, how do you justify being, say, religious or irreligious or believing that there's a soul or, you know, mm. believing the, the truths of the truths that are given to you um, in your culture? You know, to what extent is it reasonable to doubt or accept those? Everyone cares about that kind of stuff. Um, and philosophy does a disservice to the public when they don't engage with people in a way that shows how the academic tradition in philosophy can connect with those issues that everybody cares about. Um, I also think it's good for philosophers to engage with the public because we get in our little holes and our little dialogues with each other where you're talking to, you know, 25 people only who are likely to read your work and have something to say about it, right? And that's such a small set of critics and discussants who will mm. often share just a lot of the same presuppositions. So I think there's a kind of, uh, it's a good academic discipline to learn how to present what you wanna say to people outside of those narrow groups 
and say, here's the core idea, here's why it matters, here's why it's interesting, what do you think? And try to get that feedback from them. I don't know if you watched um, any of the Peterson-Harris discussions, you know, these big stadium discussions. <laughs> no, I well, missed that, I'm sorry. They were immensely popular. I mean, Peterson talked to Zizek. You know, these t tickets are being sold for 150 pounds, you know, 200 dollars, um, and it's almost like a sports event. You know, gladiator. You know, Zizek mentions Lacan or Hegel, and people start whooping. It's just bizarre, right? Absolutely bizarre. <laughs> um, but and maybe this is going to undermine what I'm, I'm about to say. But um, when when I watched um, Peterson and Harris. I couldn't help but think, you know, that this notion of the marketplace of ideas, I don't know if you're familiar with the political science uh, concept of the Overton window, you know, the acceptable window of um, uh, political ideas, um, this you know, Chomskyan idea of what, what is allowed through the, the filters of uh, uh, corporate advertising and, and power generally. Um, I couldn't help but feel that, you know, you go onto YouTube, you watch one of those debates, you flick through the comments, and obviously you've got fanboys and girls on both sides. Um, but actually, if you're you know, actually educated in philosophy or politics, those two thinkers, there's there's not as much daylight between them as as, as people think. This is a bit of a ramble, but I'll, I'll throw all of that at you. And um, yeah, what, what, what do you think about this, this um, phenomenon? Well, I think they are philosophers. So... I would agree with those who would say that you don't need a professional degree in philosophy to be a philosopher. Um, I have a pretty broad and liberal view of what counts as philosophy, right? So I think anyone who's probing into the most fundamental questions on any topic, the fundamental conceptual and epistemic and ethical moral questions on any topic, if they're doing so kind of carefully and with an eye to coming to broad conclusions, they're doing philosophy. So, so I think they are philosophers. Um, I wish Sam Harris would pay more attention to the literature on free will in philosophy that's been published in philosophy. Uh, he talks a lot about free will in a way that seems to disregard um, that literature. Um, so, right, and Peterson, I don't know as much. I haven't seen as, as much of his stuff, um, but what I've seen, I suspect <laughs> there's, this, there's some similar moving fast over things um, right. in an uncareful way. Uh, so I'm not as, it's not that I wouldn't want to call them philosophers, right? Um, but- Not very good philosophers on certain topics, maybe. <sighs> Right. And there's always, there's, I mean, I think there's, they're facing a fundamental problem, which I also face, right? Which is if you want to talk big picture and synthetic and draw on lots of areas, then you can't know as much about all of those individual areas as someone who has really devoted their whole lives to being a specialist in that one area. I mean, right? let, let's, let's give an example. You mentioned Harrison free will. Um, what, where do you see, what are the specific um, holes you see in his thinking there? Um, well, they're just, there's such a rich tradition um, in compatibilism, 
in philosophy, right? So like my colleague, John Fisher, uh, who there are lots of arguments for why uh, the determinism um, and if, if determinism is even true, which is not clear that it's true, right? And why your, your behavior being caused by what's going on in your brain plus your environment and that sort of thing um, is completely compatible with freedom and responsibility. And uh, when in the things that I've seen of his, I haven't looked at his work carefully, but in the things that I've seen and heard of his, he skates over that literature very fast uh, in a way that doesn't seem to make contact with the serious kinds of objections against his arguments that you can find among the compatibilists. So you, if I you know, put, put his argument briefly, um, th this idea of you know, contra-causal free will, the idea that um, you, re you rewind the tape and you simply couldn't have done otherwise, or if you could have, it's got nothing to do with you. It's randomness, it's you know, quantum fluctuation. Everything is behind you, or it's, it's coming out of the darkness. And if you spend 10 minutes meditating, this will be readily apparent to anybody that you know, you, you've spoken about self-awareness um, and you've written about it. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm conscious that my right foot is, you know, slightly sweaty and slightly cold. That was on the, my periphery, right? That was not something that I was aware of. Um, but to actually try to imagine um, a a a world where there is free will just doesn't make any metaphysical sense to someone like Harris. Um, and to talk about freedom and um, responsibility is see that's just fine, the way the way you're the way you are framing the question in Harris's voice right now is already to frame it in a way that the majority of philosophers who work on free will would deny that framing of it, right? So to frame it that way without discussing the alternative framings is to ignore the giant majority tradition in academic philosophy about free will, right? So most, I think the majority position among academic philosophers who study free will is that freedom does not require this counter-causal thing, which maybe is impossible or inconceivable, right? Freedom in a compatibilist tradition requires something like um, the ability to act in the way you want to act or the ability to act in a way that manifests your values. And that, right, so someone who's in chains cannot act, cannot act in the way they wanna act. You cannot act in the way that manifests their values, right? They're being prevented from, from acting freely by those chains. But someone who is merely causally determined to, what, to do what they do Right? That is the precondition of freedom is that your actions come, are caused by what's going on in your brain that are, that is a result of your environment and your previous thinking and all of that, right? So in the majority compatibilist tradition in philosophy, freedom requires causation and is completely compatible with determinism. And Could you give an example of this? So, um, 
I freely choose, I freely chose to become a philosopher that manifested my values <laughs> that I had in college. Of course, those values were the result of my environment and, you know, they're part of what was going on in my brain. I'm not saying that there was some weird metaphysical kind of causal event going on, right? It's just that, right? No one forced me to become a philosopher. So the choice was free. Do you not think there's an equivocation when compatibilists and determinists talk here over freedom and choice? Absolutely, right? And the problem is that um, the way that you set up the argument and the way that Harris often sets up the argument fails to notice that equivocation, right? So yeah, you could say freedom one and freedom two. You could say freedom one requires some kind of probably metaphysically impossible contra-causal agency. Right. And freedom two is more metaphysically tame and just means basically some version of you can do what you want to do or you can act in accordance with your values or something like that, right? And what the majority view in philosophy is, is that freedom one doesn't really make much sense, but freedom two makes a lot of sense. And that's what we can and should mean by freedom. And in that sense, free will is completely real and completely exists. What's um, when, when we kind of cash out to all of the uh, real world consequences here? What's left on the table? You know, what what do you think the real world implication, the value of getting the getting a, a right answer here um, is? Because you have people like Dan Dennett who um, would say that it's very important. He's a great example of a compatibilist, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. You you, you don't evolved. want for him. You don't want people uh, thinking that they aren't responsible. And even if that's right. not what Harris means, um, the, when you take the, these ideas to the lowest common denominator, right? The average person who's not a philosophy student right. um, in the world we currently live in, where people have jobs and they don't have time to think about this stuff, um, right. the doctrine that you're going to get is, oh well, it doesn't matter what it is. Going to be a conflation between fatalism, oh, I'll just stay in bed all day, and determinism. Right. Is that is that what you think the the danger is? in getting the wrong I think answer. there is I, I think there is potentially that danger and there's also potentially the avoidance of responsibility right it's not my fault it's my brain's fault <laughs> right or something like that right um, and also who wants to throw away this great word freedom right if you say freedom is impossible it doesn't exist then there's this there's one fewer distinctions valuable distinctions in the world right sometimes we aren't free Right. Sometimes you make choices that aren't really free um, and they might be unfree because you're in chains or they might be unfree because you are, for example, in the midst of an intense addictive episode. Right. So in that sense, you're not acting according according to your values for, you know, maybe potentially certain cases of addiction. I think this is complex, right? But potentially in certain cases of addiction um, or uh, you're not acting according to your, your real desires, your real values. So you can say, well, look, you know, that decision wasn't free. That decision really was the addiction speaking. Um, so we have this useful distinction between what, what's free and unfree, whether the source of freedom is external or some kind of internal thing. Uh, and let's not get rid of that by just saying, well, for the idea of freedom just doesn't even make any sense. So we've got to keep, as I'm calling it, freedom too, 
in our toolbox. Yeah, uh, positive freedom, as Isaiah Berlin famously called it. So I kind of want to try and extrapolate some, uh, like Socrates, the, these underlying uh, assumptions here. So do you think that it's possible to talk in absolutes about uh, the value of perceiving reality? That it's, it, it, whether determinism is true or not, we want to know that. And yeah, how, how does that play out? And I, I, I'm really fascinated in the lowest common denominator question. Sounds a bit elitist, but you know, I, I grew up very working class. So, um, you know, first in family to go to university, I kind of um, straddled this, um, you know, uh, bridge between the university educated world and, you know, my family and, um, you know, home um, friends who, you know, are laborers, you know, bricklayers, to, you know, totally different worlds. And I, so I, I feel like I've got a good insight into how some of these ideas get, you know, percolate downwards. Um, and you might be able to say, oh no, per perceiving reality is always good. But the omitted clause might be, if you're a philosopher, right? You know, <laughs> if you're spending your time, you know, 30 hours a week thinking about this stuff, um, not as we previously alluded to, if you're, um, <laughs> if you're not. Well, I'm a fan of perceiving reality. So, um, you're thinking about the possibility of useful illusions? Yeah, like someone like Donald Hoffman, right? Yeah, mm -hmm. there's this big idea. Well, I think he calls it conscious realism. Yeah, that evolution has right. not programmed us to, to, well, at least our perceptual system, uh, to, you know, to, to, to perceive reality. Mathematics, geometry, as you know, Descartes said, maybe. Um, <laughs> but certainly not reality. Well, yeah, the relationship between you know, the fundamentals of reality and our experiences of it and our judgments of it, um, that's pretty complex. Uh, and there's certainly something right in Hoffman's view that we're not being selected kind of <laughs> We haven't been evolutionarily selected or culturally trained <laughs> to, you know, latch on exactly to the features of, of reality. Then there's a question about, okay, what kind of gap is there between the features of fundamental reality and reality as we experience it or our perceptions or judgments about it? And that is, you know, one of the fundamental questions of epistemology. I think there's a range of possible views there from thinking something like well of course we don't get all the details right but basically what we think we see is pretty real um, all the way to something like um, the view that we're living inside a computer simulation and fundamental reality is you know a computer it's the nick <laughs> <And> bostrom <we're... laughs> right yeah right um you know and and it's all being fed to us uh, and what's underneath our experiences and our, the empirical world as we encounter it is just radically different from, from what we think it is coming, not only Boston, right. But I think Kant, uh, Kant's view uh, is similar to that without needing the computer um, uh, to underlie it. But the, I think the essential idea uh, could be very similar between the simulation view and, and Kant's view where, you're just the underlying metaphysics 
could be just radically different from what we ordinarily understand. And, and how do we know that if, uh, if, if we're epistemically impaired and getting to fundamental reality? Do you think that, so, okay, so do you think there are any um, situations that you can think of where you would not want to perceive reality? I mean, Harris, again, to come back to the pop, the f popular philosopher du jour, um, her, wrote a brilliant little book actually called Lying, right? where he made a you know, kind of an absolutist um, case for, I'm not going to lie to my daughters about anything. People say, what about Santa Claus? It's like, well, no, because you don't want to be the last kid in the class. Like being, <laughs> getting your first lesson in epistemology from, you know, Harry as he eats his jam sandwiches at lunch. So Santa Claus, he doesn't exist. What are you talking about? Your, your mum and dad were lying to you. That's not how you want to learn uh, that you can't trust yeah. your mum and dad. Um, <laughs> so do you, do you think yeah. there are any situations where you, you wouldn't want to perceive things as they are? Oh, right. Well, if reality were so horrible that it would just cause a collapse in despair, you know, then maybe the better thing would be not to perceive it. I, I think in general, I think there's a positive value in perceiving reality and knowing things, even independent of whether that brings you benefits Right. So in my view, among the fundamental things of value is understanding and knowledge and perception, accurate perception. But that's not to say that that's the only thing of value or that it couldn't in some cases be overridden by things of contrary value. I mean, I think one one nice case of this is the self-deceived sports team. I used to use the LA Clippers as an example because just for decades they were just so bad. <laughs> but the example doesn't work anymore and I'm not a big sports follower so I don't know what team would, would be a good choice, right? But, you know, imagine the LA Clippers, you know, in the early 2000s, right? Every, every season they'd start with like, this season's going to be different. This season we're going to win. We're going all the way. Right? And it was completely, of course, not <laughs> the case, right? But... You know, that's that's so great as a member of a team, a sports team, to have perhaps an inflated confidence, inflated expectations about your success. Um, in one sense, it's not that epistem epistemically vicious uh, to be wrong about a sports team's success. It's, mm. it's not like being wrong about something that's kind of more fundamentally important. And there's a kind of... Um, loyalty to your teammates in it, right? That you believe in them, right? And there's a kind of enthusiasm and hope and energy that comes from that. That's a kind of practical benefit. So that kind of thing, I think, is, an, is a nice kind of, a nice case where a certain amount of uh, excessive optimism is justified and maybe even admirable. What do you think about the role of psychedelics, which is becoming more and more um, uh, prominent in the medical you know, research community? I'm specifically thinking of um, psilocybin and DMT, the active uh, compound in ayahuasca. Um, do you think they have a... Um, a role to play in our future comprehension of uh, reality expanding consciousness? I think it's possible. Um, I don't know much about them. But I do think that 
we experience altered states of consciousness every night when we dream. And I think that meditative practice uh, for serious meditators can bring you into states of consciousness that are very different from your ordinary daily state of consciousness. And so similarly, um, it's reasonable to think, and those, and those states of consciousness have certain functions and values, right? So it's reasonable to think that also drug-induced uh, alterations in your experience could be interesting and valuable to explore and maybe part of a good life. So it's a shame there hasn't been more research on them so that we can see, you know, exactly what their risks and benefits are so we can accurately evaluate them. But yeah, now that research is finally kind of getting restarted on some of these uh, compounds, I think uh, I definitely support further exploring what they might bring. And you see yourself uh, taking what Terence McKenna called the hero's dose of psilocybin in 10 years time, should, that, should it become mainstream? <laughs> well, I would definitely consider it. I would consider it. You know, my father was involved in one of the early uh, LSD experiments uh, as a student of Timothy Leary's. Did he have any good stories about this? No, actually, he didn't really have much story. He didn't really have drug stories. Um, I wish I'd asked him more. I wish I'd got more from him before he died on on his experiences uh, with Timothy Leary and others uh, back in his days at Harvard, but uh, yeah. Is that something you, after he died, is that something that you um, went back to examine, like you know, Leary and um, uh, Ramdas, as um, he was called then? Yeah, um, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. Yeah, it was part of my mourning process to uh to read some Timothy Leary and listen to some Ramdas actually it was yeah how did you find <laughs> it um I like the Ramdas more than the Leary Leary seemed to me a little a little too I mean I've got a pretty high tolerance for the loopy and the strange but he was a little past my tolerance level for loopy and strange at least in kind of his later books um, I've got such a, um, a fantastic segue into UFOs after this. <laughs> you know, I think it's good that they're out there, um, but they didn't work for me in the way that I think he would hope that they would work. Whereas Ramdas, right. on the other hand, he's such a great storyteller and such a wonderful yeah, yeah. character. Um, yeah. So softly spoken. <laughs> yeah. So um, on to the, the paranormal, the loopy, the weird. Um <laughs> Have you have you followed the the uh, the Pentagon uh, drip feed uh, release of UFOs and I guess what those no. in the community call disclosure? No, I haven't. Uh, I haven't been. I mean, I noticed a little bit on social media about that, but I haven't really followed it. Uh, so, as someone um, you know, versed in skepticism, but also interested in the loopy and the strange, um, what do you make of? Um, I, I, I can. I know you haven't followed it um, closely, but um, the to, to give listeners and viewers the the gist, the the release of videos which appear to show uh, crafts doing things that we know that 
we're, we're pretty sure that hu humans don't have the technology to achieve. And that's you know, followed by um, kind of a you know, the concomitant uh, Pentagon um, admission that uh, this isn't the US and it could be China and Russia and we're not ruling out aliens. Do you, do you see this um, through a particular lens? Um, let me tell you about spoon bending. So, right, this is a um, purported form of telekinesis where you take a spoon in your hand and you kind of think bend or yell bend at it and it, it bends, right? And for someone who, the idea is that for someone who's not a very good spoon bender, what happens is it warms up and then you kind of have to physically bend it uh, by touching it, but bending it is much easier than it would normally be for a spoon that hadn't been warmed up by your telekinetic energies. Whereas for someone who's really like got a lot of power, it can bend entirely on its own. So um, I knew someone personally who I really respected and still respect who thought that spoon bending was real. This is in the 80s and earlier. And even held parties in which people attempted to bend spoons. And I went to uh, some of these parties and tried to and never succeeded myself. But I would hear, like I remember being at one of these parties and hearing someone shout in what seems like amazement, right? And then I turn and I look and there's this person and their spoon is bent, right? I think, this person I really respect thinks this is real and it seems to be happening even though I haven't seen it myself. I, uh, this person shared a video with me, right? Where I didn't see the spoon actually bend, but you know, it looked like maybe, you know, in a hazy way, you can kind of see that it's bending or the, the camera holder is, is turning toward the bent spoon just after it happens. And it seems like there's a authentic surprise in, uh, in the person who's done it. And so, in the 80s, I was thinking, you know, because I'm kind of iconoclastic, I'm like, maybe? I mean, I'm not inclined to think that it's likely, but, you know, maybe I can't rule it out. But, you know, over time, you know, as video becomes more and more available, right, the fact that there isn't, hasn't been increasing, or at the same time, also in the 80s, my dad was talking about how police would, you know, perpetrate violence on people all the time, or quite often, <laughs> surprisingly often to someone who's white and lives in a suburb, right? Because he worked with uh, uh, people who were juvenile delinquencies, or as they then called. And he wanted to form, he wanted cars and he wanted cameras and police cars. And he wanted to form what he called Cop Cop, this committee on the uh, proper conduct of police, he called it. So, right, so I had these two people and one of them was like, spoon bending is real, although we don't really observe it. And the other one's like, you know, police brutality is real, although we, you know, at least us <laughs> don't really observe it, right? And then as there's more and more video footage and more and more cameras in our society, right? There's not increased evidence of spoon bending, but there is a lot of increased evidence of police violence. So, so I guess I've got that kind of similar attitude about the paranormal stuff in, in general. Right, that I was, 
I'm not totally closed-minded about it, but I'm less open to it than I was in the 80s, given the general lack of of evidence for it um, as our ability to film things and notice things and detect things has increased. What would you need to see in order to become a believer in the the UFO phenomenon? I think it's partly going to have to be for me um, a social, a partly social determination, right? So if you think about something like um, evolutionary theory, you know, there's excellent reason to believe that in evolutionary theory, the earth is very old and that humans have evolved from earlier primates. Um, But I'm not in a position to myself have an argument one-on-one with someone who's an expert on the issue who maybe doesn't believe in it. Right. Right. Um, So I would say similarly with respect to psi phenomena or UFOs, there's going to have to be a kind of convergence of experts with different kinds of abilities and different sources of skepticism uh, toward saying, hey, look, it does look surprisingly, maybe, (laughs) like the evidence for this stuff is pretty good. for me to become convinced. I'm not sure that there's like one thing I could personally see that I would say, there's no way that could be faked. I mean, how mm-hmm. do I know? I mean, I see like, you know, magicians do these things with cards. It's like, what? How did he pull four kings out of the middle? <laughs> I swear I saw that it was all shuffling around and somehow it happened, right? But I don't think that's paranormal. It's just like, I cannot evaluate what can be faked and what can't, right? Um, so, so, so I, I don't think I would necessarily trust my own judgment of any particular piece of evidence in the absence of a broader community-wide assessment of that evidence. Changing tact completely, um, I wanted to speak to you about consciousness. Um, how conscious are we? And are there any good arguments that we're not conscious? So people can mean different things by the word conscious. And I like to mean something pretty simple and innocent by it, I think. Um, But it's a little bit hard to define in that simple, innocent sense uh, because it's something that's so fundamental that it cannot be defined in other terms, right? So you can define a rectangle as a four-sided planar figure with right angles, right? Um, Because a rectangle isn't a fundamental concept. It's a concept that can be defined in terms of other concepts. You can't do that with consciousness without changing it or redefining it. So I think, in fact, the only good way to define consciousness is by example. And we can define things. We define things by example all the time, right? You know what a fur- what furniture is, right? No one ever gave you a, a rigorous definition of what furniture is. You just know examples 
what ex what counts as furniture and what doesn't count as furniture. You get enough examples, and you you've got the concept. So, um, I think there's an innocent, fairly simple definition of consciousness that most people can understand through examples. Uh, and th in that sense of consciousness, I think um, it is extremely difficult to uh, deny that you're conscious. So here's what I mean by conscious, right? So when you close your eyes, maybe you can have a visual image of your house or apartment as it looks from the street. You know, some people can't have images like that, but, you know, or you can, you can imagine a tune running through your head. You can, if you open your eyes and you look at something like, I'll take my sun lotion here, you'll look at something orange, right? You have this visual experience of an orange thing, right? Uh, if you drop something heavy on your toe, you have, you, know, you can feel pain, right? If you're very happy or intensely angry, there's kind of something it feels like to be happy or angry in that way. Or if you really are like craving a dessert, right? There's like, you can, there's an experience to, of, of that, right? It might not, it might be different for different people and different in different times, but you know. Do you think um, that the, that it's more useful to use that phrase um, self-aware rather than the phrase something that it's like, because you, you can imagine, I, I think you can anyway, it's, something that it's like to be me but that doesn't necessarily mean that i'm self-aware and i watched that interview you did on um uh closer to the truth um uh -huh. closer to truth um yeah. where, where you you i think you you kind of get at this idea um that we probably don't have that much more self-awareness than an elephant or a dolphin right we are right. constantly on a treadmill of um you know emotion and um being captured as the Buddhists tell us. Right. Yeah, what I what I don't like about self-aware as a term for consciousness is that it kind of builds in this idea that you know what's going on in your experience, right? So I just describe right. I define by example what it is to have consciousness or what it is to have experiences. And you know, of course, we all have experiences like this, right? But I I, I do think that we often have not much clue. <laughs> about what those experiences are, because what we attend to, what we care about mostly, is what's going on around us in the outside world. That's what we're really focused on most of the time. Um, so there's a kind of, um, yeah, so if you use self-aware to mean conscious, then you're either making an assumption that I'm inclined to deny, which is that when you have experiences, you know or are aware of having those experiences, or you're kind of building something into the definition of consciousness that you can then deny and say, oh, see, so we're not conscious after all because we're not so self-aware, right? And I don't want to do either of those things. So that's one of the reasons that I say I prefer. That I prefer or, or can you just take a gradient approach with the second and say, no, no, we are conscious. If by conscious, we mean self-aware. We're just not conscious most of the time. Right, so that would be defining the word consciousness in a certain way. And if you define the word consciousness in that way, then, you know, maybe we don't have a whole lot of consciousness, but that, that I wouldn't, I don't want to define consciousness in that way. And I don't think that's how most philosophers use it, um, at least in, you know, current Anglophone culture. And I don't think that's the most interesting target 
of um, theorizing, right? The, the thing that's really interesting, the thing that creates the metaphysical puzzles and the puzzles in philosophy of mind is the question of how is it possible for there to be experiences like what I've just described with my examples? How is that possible in a world that maybe is fundamentally composed of you know, elementary particles spinning in the void or forces and fields or whatever the, you think of this being the fundamental elements of physics? Um, right, that puzzle, right? How can you have like the experience of pain or uh, visual experience in a world that maybe is fundamentally just atoms in the void to use an old way of thinking about it. Um, that's the interesting puzzle and not the puzzle of, you know, given that you have, I mean, I think it's also interesting given that you have experiences, how do you know that you have them? I mean, that's also a very interesting puzzle. But it's not quite the same puzzle. And those puzzles shouldn't be um, mushed together as though it was just a single puzzle of consciousness. What do you think the role of language is in consciousness? Um, as a fan of um, Chomsky's linguistic work, um, do you do you see it as almost synonymous with consciousness and a uh, new language defined in that Chomskyan sense of an I language, an internal language, thought basically? And when you combine that with the um, uh, historical evidence that you know, whenever language comes online 50 to 150,000 years ago, you see this explosion of um, creation and something clearly being, uh, that, that's something that is internal being externalized. Language is wonderful. Language is a wonderful tool. And it's a great technology that has allowed human beings to do all these amazing things. But to think of language as fundamental to consciousness in the sense that I just described consciousness puts a gulf between us and other mammals that seems to me to be exaggerated, right? My own inclination is to think we aren't that radically different from dogs and apes. Right, there's a lot that's similar. But on top of that, we've got language. We've invented this amazing thing, language. And we're totally different in that respect. And that's allowed us to do all of these wonderful things. Um, but, but it's a technology and uh, a late addition to our evolutionary brain structure rather than the fundamental thing that makes us conscious. I just have one more, um, shall we say, depth question, and then three quick-fire questions. For sure. You. Um, so I, I, I made this video about your research with Fiery Cushman, and uh, when I posted it onto the intertubes, the interwebs, um, one of the, I think, replies on the philosophy subreddit was, well, hang on a second. This isn't what Plato meant by philosophers, right? <laughs> yeah. Philosopher oh, I'm kings. A, I'll see my T-shirt here. Plato's cave yeah, search and yeah, rescue team. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, 
So um, you know, someone, someone as fallible as the you know one of the seven hundred participants in that study is not the prime example of Mr. Plato's philosopher kings. Um, do you think this is a a? Um, I mean, obviously, it's a valid criticism. Um, I guess philosophically, but in terms of you know a, the psychological reality of someone that is capable of withstanding um, the uh, yeah the, the the biases that you talk about, uh, the pressure to conform to them. Um, I mean, you, you 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 stress in the paper that you are amazed, right? That even specialists in ethics, you, you really did expect some small effect sizes. Really, you got nothing. Do you think it's it, it's it's possible that there are a few people, maybe they're you know, on the uh, autistic spectrum, you know, very literal minded? Um, is there anyone out there who would <laughs> fulfill Plato's definition and thus prove <laughs> prove that we can look to these ubermenches to guide us? Yeah. Um... So if we're talking about, say, the trolley problem in particular, right, which was the focus of this research, right, under what conditions ought you to divert a trolley, um, killing one person uh, to save five others, right? And you, you monkey around with that and pre present it in different orders and people give different answers. And that includes, apparently, according to my research with Fiery Cushman, includes highly sophisticated professors of philosophy who specialize in ethics are also seem to be subject to all these same biases in, in their answers to ethical questions uh, about uh, these so-called trolley problems. Now, I do not think that, say, John Martin Fisher or Francis Cam, <laughs> I mean, they've thought about the trolley problem so much, I'm pretty sure their answers are gonna be consistent, right? And maybe they were in our subject pool, but they were undetectable. <laughs> uh, but like everybody else, if you're not, I mean, or maybe they would be, I, I guess I don't have direct empirical evidence on that, but it seemed like up to a very high level of specialization, um, people seem to be subject to these biases. So one thing I, so the, one thing I wanna say is probably, I mean, our experiment doesn't address it, but probably once you get to the very most specialist, specialized people in the world, like the dozen top specialists on trolley problems in the world, probably they all thought through these cases well enough that they got fixed answers and they're not gonna change around depending on exactly how it's framed or the order of the questions. But I don't think that would probably translate into a general kind of stability if they're then asked uh, questions about philosophy of mind or you know, some other area of philosophy, right? Uh, and in general, I'm pretty opposed to the idea of seeing great philosophers as um, virtually infallible geniuses. Um, I think the great philosophers um, had wonderful ideas, but I, it's, <laughs> but I see them as basically like you and me right? They're just ordinary fallible people, full of biases and full of bad arguments. And one of the things that I dislike about his, about the way we approach some of these philosophers in history of philosophy is the excessive charity uh, with which we read them sometimes, right? So, you know, you approach Kant, who's very convoluted and difficult to understand. And 
the idea of a lot of interpreters is he was such a genius that he couldn't be making any bad arguments. So if you end up reading the stuff and thinking it's a bad argument, you must be misinterpreting him because he's too much of a genius to make a bad argument. Um, that kind of attitude, I think, is really unfortunate um, and leads us to not actually appreciate historical figures as much as we could if we are willing to attribute to them bad arguments and views that seem seem to us to be obviously wrong. Um, and I think it's also probably just factually incorrect. So in Kant in particular is one of the people who attracts the most of this kind of uh, charitable hero worship. Um, and so one of the things I did um, a while back when it came a, became a chapter in my 2019 book um, was look at some of Kant's really terrible arguments where he's less abstract and talking about applied issues. Like for example, his argument against masturbation, uh, which he does in the metaphysics of morals, not to be confused with the groundwork of the metaphysics of morals. It's a, it's a stupid, cheap argument, right? He's got similarly stupid arguments against allowing servants to have the vote, right? So when he gets concrete enough and the arguments are specific enough and the conclusion is noxious enough, you can see, well, Kant is really capable of putting together some bad arguments for stupid ideas, right? So that's, that's the same guy who wrote the more famous Groundwork of the Metaphysics of Morals and Critique of Pure Reason, he is perfectly capable of making stupid arguments for bad ideas. And in fact, I think once we allow ourselves to view our philosophical heroes as making stupid arguments for bad ideas, we actually make them less like us. Well, then we make them more like us in their fallibility, which I think is good in a way, right? Um, and also accurate. But we make them less like us in their ideas, right? So it allows us to say, well, look, here's this really loopy-seeming, bizarre idea. And if you're overly charitable, you'd say, oh, no one would think that thing. It's too loopy. It's too bizarre, right? But um, if, you're, if, you're, if you see them as more fallible, then you can say, well, look, here's this wonderful philosopher who thought this thing and man, it really is pretty loopy. Uh, I'm not inclined to believe it. But now you have a better sense of, and I think a more accurate sense and a, a refreshing sense of the diversity of human philosophical cognition and human philosophical opinion. Oh, there really are people who think like things that seem pretty strange and, and funny to us. Uh, and that's good in a number of ways. So that's a complicated answer, but I do think that um, I don't like this kind of over charitable heroizing of philosophers as being virtually infallible. I don't think it's empirically accurate to real cognition of real philosophers. And I also don't think it's the healthiest and most productive way of reading philosophy if you want to really get insight into the diversity of human philosophical cognition. Yeah, that's really interesting. I guess it takes us kind of full circle back to the discussion about you know public philosophers and Harris and Peterson. Um, those those are great examples about Kant um, and the power of um, society, the power of history to drive bad ideas forward through the vehicle of uh, great men. Um, 
and sometimes women. Um, do you think, just as a quick follow-up to that, that you would be in favour of a different type of uh, undergraduate education, education which focused more on uh, the ideas and you just you tried as much as possible to get away from a course that said uh, Aristotle, Plato, etc, etc. Um, I think it's good to have both kinds, right? If you're talking about philosophy education, it's nice to have courses that lay out the history in terms of great influential figures, um, partly because a lot of these people are really wonderful philosophers who are rewarding to read and it's good to see a kind of broad coherent picture that they can pull together get a flavor of of this person's ideas so i do like that i do like that approach i wouldn't oppose that approach but that's not how i do it in my own undergraduate teaching especially my lower division teaching um, in my lower division teaching what i really love to do is meet the students with issues that they already care about, do an issue-driven thing that starts with the students, as we were talking about earlier in the interview, right? I think everybody cares about philosophical issues. So you find issues that they care about, focus on that, and then bring it back to um, what wonderful philosophers uh, and others have said about those issues. So for example, um, the big lower division class I now regularly teach called Evil starts with um, racial lynching in the US South in the early 20th century and, and photography of it in particular, right? And these just shocking photographs of basically families of white people, right? With the corpse of someone that has just been murdered by the mob posing proudly for the photographs, bringing their children, right? And you can read the historical background of it, right? And often this person was accused of something trivial. And it's not even clear they did the trivial thing, um, right? And yet it's like this, and it's the celebration, right? And, you know, not everybody finds that interesting or worth thinking about, right? But a lot more people find that interesting and worth thinking about than the average stuff that I used to start with in intro to philosophy. You know, so we're like, okay, let's start this class by thinking about, so these people presumably do not think that they're, they've done this act of evil. And yet it's pretty clear that what they've done is evil. And how did they come to this? What are they thinking? What's going on? What leads to this kind of thing? And students, a lot of students find that really interesting and engaging, already have opinions about it, will argue with each other about it. And then when you start with that, you can bring it, you can show the bridges to psycho social psychology, to work in the history of philosophy on ethics and uh, human nature, um, to other stuff in history, to issues of racism and uh, so, so that's how that's how I like to do it now, rather than focusing on the big figures. Yeah, I, I concur with that. I, I I've taught philosophy to, from everyone to very small children all the way up to seventeen, eighteen year olds, off to uh, college, university, and where possible, using a wedge issue to um, get them hooked, and then. Uh, 
start to, start to yeah bring in the 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 great thinkers i think is uh, yeah always preferable to going through a uh, pre i guess a canon yeah um but let's get on to the quick fire questions um yep. what is your favorite book of all time let's do fiction and non-fiction yeah, my favorite book is Borges' Labyrinths. Good choice. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that book. He's so fascinating and weird. And uh, nonfiction? Fiction. Well, this is going to be very far from Labyrinths, but probably uh, the inner chapters of the Zhuangzi, the ancient Chinese philosopher. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's kind of fiction too. But uh, I haven't read that, so I'll, I'll have to pick that up. Uh, Who is the smartest person that you've ever met, and do you have any good anecdotes about them? <laughs> I don't believe that the concept of smartness is a useful concept, or well, I think it can, it's not totally useless, but I think it's overplayed. Um, and part of the toxic culture of philosophy. So I, instead of answering that question in a straightforward way, can I use it as an opportunity? Can I use it as an opportunity to um, to argue that, or at least assert that this idea that um, there are people who are generally smart and people who are generally less smart is really part of the problem uh, in academic culture. Uh, and that what really, what really makes for a great scholar is work and passion. I think that if you care about something and you're thinking about it all the time and you work at it and you come at it and you come at it and you come at it and you're not like procrastinating because you don't really like it <laughs> and you just dedicate yourself to it, then you get the skill and the facility with it that makes people think, wow, they're so smart. <laughs> but it's not like some innate thing. It's... It's the passion and the work. People are easy to fall because, you know, I, I played, uh, you know, very basic guitar for a few years, just four chords. And you get good at four chords. People are like, oh, you're, you can play guitar. So I, I can't play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So that's, that's what I think. Uh, the final question, just uh, you know, very casual, easy. Final question is, uh, what are the best arguments for and against God? All right, best argument against, if you mean by God, someone who's all power, all powerful, all knowledgeable and benevolent, I think is the problem sure. with evil, right? It's the fact that there's so much suffering and evil in the world. How would this all powerful, benevolent, omniscient God allow that? I mean, if you really are 100% convinced that God exists, then you can come up with like excuses or reasons why this might not really be as bad as it seems or 
or you could come up with some free will story or something like that. But I think that's pretty hard. I think that's pretty hard. Um, so I, I prefer Hume's attitude, which is like you start with neutrality. Maybe there's a God, maybe there's not. Let's look at the evidence. Look at the evidence. You see, say, the Holocaust. <laughs> you see tooth decay. <laughs> and you're like, it's not looking very good. Um, that's, I think, the best argument against, in my view. Uh, the best argument for, um, I'm intrigued by the um, fine-tuning argument in cosmology. I don't know if you know this. Um, but my understanding is that if, say, the gravitational constant were just a little bit higher, <laughs> then we wouldn't have the, um, the kind of formation of elements that allow for complex life that we have. Um, everything would collapse too quickly into black holes. Uh, if the gravitational constant were a little bit lighter, then similarly, we wouldn't have the formation of these kinds of complex elements. Um, similarly, for other kinds of physical constants, they seem, in a sense, to be uh, just where they need to be, or at least in the range they need to be to allow for the existence of um, complex life in the world. Are you not and, persuaded by the um, anthropomorphic principle? Um, right. So the anthropomorphic idea is... Well, it's no surprise that we should be in a universe that sustains life because, you know, you're not going to have an observer except in a universe like that. <laughs> just like it's no surprise that of all the places we are in the Milky Way galaxy, it just happens to be that we're on the one that's, that's good for sustaining human-like life. Wow, what a coincidence. <laughs> no, that's not a coincidence, right? <laughs> of course, we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't have evolved in outer space. So, um, right. So that's uh, a certain kind of response. Uh, to the fine-tuning argument. Um, I guess, right, there are three main views you could go with it. Uh, and I, I, I find um, all three to have some plausibility to them, right? One is you could say, well, look, God, that's the explanation, <laughs> right? The universe was created by an entity who like nature that the, you know, the idea of fine-tuning kind of invites the idea of a tuner, right? God made it such, you know? Um, that's one explanation. Another explanation is the multiverse explanation, right? The idea though, well, really what it is, is there's bunches and bunches of universes that all have different constants, right? And of course, we happen to be in one that has the constants aligned just so. Most universes are pretty empty of life. And then you appeal to the anthropic principle to say, and of course, it's not surprising that we're in the one, <laughs> or the, the small minority that um, support life, right? And then the third kind of response is you could say, well, look, you know, if they weren't fine-tuned, there'd be nobody here to complain. <laughs> Doesn't really need to be explained. You know, we know that we're here, so we know that the constants have to be what they are and really doesn't need further explanation than that. Um, so I, I find all three responses have some pull to them. Um, I'm not myself a theist. I'm not convinced by the first response, but um, if we're thinking about the kinds of the argument that I find most convincing, uh, it is that one. Eric, thank you so much for, um, for doing this and for going 20 minutes over our, our <laughs> hour. Um, where can people find you? Right. So I have a blog called The Splintered Mind. Um, that's probably the easiest way to see my uh, most recent thoughts. I try to post there once a week or so. Um, and also, I've got an academic homepage. And, uh, and you're on the Twitter sphere. 
I'm on the Twitter sphere. I'm on Facebook. I, uh, yeah, you just Google Schwitz Gable and there aren't a lot of other Schwitz Gables out there. I will put all of that in the bio. Okay. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for having me. It's been fun to chat. If you're listening to this, then you have made it to the end of the podcast. So why not give me a review on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast, throw five stars down, give me that review. It helps massively. It helps to grow the podcast and get more people listening. Obviously, if you love it, then why not become a $1 or £1 patron? For that, you get early access to these podcasts, as well as many other goodies like uh, Zoom chats and God knows what else. There's loads on there. Go check it out. Thank you very much for watching, and I'll see you in the next one. Thank you.